You're listening to the Clear Creek Resources Podcast from Clear Creek Community Church, located in the Bay Area of Houston. Hey everyone, welcome to the Clear Creek Resources Podcast. I'm Ryan. On February 20th, we hosted the End Times Forum featuring Dr. Yancey Arrington, our teaching pastor. And we broke that up into two different sections. We have uh, the main session followed by a Q&A. And so we decided to post that as a part of our audio podcast. So if you didn't get a chance to watch it in person or watch it online, uh, here it is in the audio version. This is just gonna be the first part, the main session. Enjoy. All right, hey, how are y'all doing tonight? Good. All right. Welcome to the Clear Creek Forum. Uh, my name is Ryan Leighton. I'm the director of our spiritual formation and also uh, campus pastor for this campus, the Egret Bay campus. And so uh, we do these forums. We've done uh, th- uh, two of them already. This is our third forum. And uh, the idea is for us to do these once or twice a year to be able to dig deeper into certain topics. Uh, they have been over sermon series that we've been doing, but they're not always gonna be that way. Sometimes we've brought in somebody, sometimes we've done somebody in-house, like tonight is one of those. Uh, So really the format for tonight is this. We're gonna hear from uh, our speaker uh, for a while. I don't know how long he's gonna go. He doesn't know how long he's gonna go. Um, If at all during that time, if you need to go to the restroom, just feel free to get up and go. He's not gonna stop and wait for you. Uh, But There is gonna be a point where he will have to take a break and we will go outside and we have some cookies out there for a short intermission uh, and then we'll come back for some Q&A. So what that means is we need questions from you. So at any point tonight, as you're hearing him talk up front, uh, you can send us in your questions. If you go to slido.com and put in the keyword in times, or if you just snap that QR code, it takes you right there and you can put in your questions. Now, if you're listening and you're thinking, I don't have any questions, Still, I want you to go there because you can read the other questions that other people are posting and you can upvote them so that way you're, you're, uh, we'll be able to actually see that question come up to the top and more likely to try to entertain those questions. Now, we're not gonna be able to get to every single question. We'll try to do as many as we can, uh, but I know at the end we're gonna have a list of questions that we cannot address uh, in this setting. And so we're gonna find some other ways to do that. Uh, maybe a Clear Creek Resources podcast or articles, uh, different content uh, following this event. So uh, make sure you put your questions on there. We'll do our best to get those answered. So without further ado, let me introduce our teacher, or our speaker for tonight. Uh, you know him as Yancey Arrington, our teaching pastor at Clear Creek Community Church. If you're not from Clear Creek, uh, welcome, glad that you are here. Uh, but let's welcome Yancey Arrington. Thanks, <clears throat> I'm glad you guys are here for our uh, in-depth study of Lamentations. So if you have your Bibles. <laughs> All right. Here's the deal. So I'm glad that you're here. I hope you guys have been enjoying our Revelation series. It's been something that's been fun for us. And uh, I I really thought it would be apropos for us to do a forum just because I wanted to see how many more people I could get mad through the study of Revelation. Nancy, this is not how I grew up listening and learning all this stuff. And we know that. That's why we're teaching it, uh, to be honest with you. And so when it comes to studying the end times and we look at things like uh, the book of Revelation, it seems like there are a thousand different interpretations, and you get all kinds of weird stuff. And as I told you at the start of this series, how I grew up, I grew up uh, within one of these certain views that we're going to look at. I was taught like locusts in the Bible mean military helicopters, and ICBMs mean this, and this is Russia, and that's uh, Gorbachev, and that's the Shah of Iran, and that's all the stuff I grew up with. 
So I always thought like there was going to be Armageddon around the corner. And then I realized as I grew in God's word and learned about some things that there were some different views than just the one that I was taught. Now, again, uh, <clears throat> here's what I want to do. And maybe because of that, I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton who said this. He said, though St. John the evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision in Revelation, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. <laughs> that's true. Uh, I, I think that's super true. Like the craziest stuff that I hear comes out of the book of Revelation, not because it's in the book of Revelation, it's because some guy who was a prophecy expert told you this is what's supposed to be, but we don't have enough knowledge to, do, to, 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 to speak back to that person to go, you know what, maybe that's not true. But what I want to do is kind of fill you guys in on some different views about stuff that you may have thought there was only one view, that the church was unanimous on, and it's not, not at, <clears throat> at all. So uh, before we go any further, let me give you a little preface here. Uh, one, this will be my best shot to help you guys understand what I understand, what we understand as a teaching team. And I'm not going to put all those guys on the line. I'll just do like, you know, I've been doing some of the heavy lifting on this as far as uh, I got into this study about a year ago just for me personally. I wanted to hit up over the top scholars on Revelation. I spent three months, sometimes eight to ten hours a day, just reading through Revelation for me, line by line, precept by precept, and I was just blown away by what I saw in it. But I want to tell you this, there are a lot of things that we're not going to cover in our series that I want to cover tonight. By a lot of things, I mean two, but they're two big ones, <laughs> two, really, <clears throat> two really big ones. So I'm going to do the best I can do to tell you what I think is the right way to look at this. And by the right way, I mean here are the different ways you can look at it and you can make your own decision. And if I've misrepresented someone's view, you'll just have to forgive me. I've tried to do my due diligence. I've asked people who hold these views like, hey, is this right? They're like, yeah, that's right. Don't screw it up. I know I've heard this whole thing. So just know that. Secondly, uh, I'm not gonna answer questions tonight that we have already addressed in our series. So if you're like, Yancey, what's 666 mean? You should have showed up two weeks ago. <clears throat> Yancey, what's the mark of the beast? I wish you'd have shown up that same time as well. Because we've got that. It's on Clear Creek Resources. You can watch it. You can go see how we go in depth on that, what that, all that means. But I don't want to waste your time. So I said, they've asked me, how long is this going to take? I've never done this before, this form. Um, and so some of this stuff is what I do with my systematic theology. So my systematic guys and gals that are here, they're going to get like a refresh later on. Here are the two questions I want to address. I'm going to talk about what about the millennium and what about the rapture? Right? <clears throat> so we don't fill up a room like this because we want to talk about lamentations. We fill up a room because you've heard something about the rapture, you believe something about the rapture, but many of you don't even know why you believe what you believe about the rapture because you read it in a book or you saw it in a movie or someone had it on a cool little bumper sticker, this car will be unmanned when the rapture happens. And so you think that God's going to zip you up and zip you out and you're going to left leave everything but your underwear, maybe that stays here too. That is a view. But did you know it's not the only view? We're going to get into all that. So here's what I want to do. <clears throat> You'll have to excuse me. My throat's a little parched because I already preached twice this morning, and so I'll be drinking a lot of water here. Let's talk about the millennium because we're not going to get to talk a lot about it in our series. Uh, where's Bruce? Bruce, where are you? Where's Bruce? Oh, did he leave? Oh, he's back in the back. <laughs> Bruce, you're doing Revelation 20. Is that right? Okay, so Bruce is going to tell you all you need to know about the millennium. Um, but what he doesn't cover, I need to cover tonight. <clears throat> because there's a lot of stuff in Revelation 20 that he's got to get to that's actually beyond the millennium. Now, what's the millennium about? Well, here we go. Let me start off with um, what I would say as we talk about it. Now, if you don't have notes, if you're not taking notes, that's great. I'm sure all this is going to absorb in your brain, uh, but have fun. <laughs> I'm going to start off with the quotation from <clears throat> a guy I really respect named Grant Goldsworthy. 
Uh, he's written a lot of books. He's a professor of Old Testament biblical theology and hermeneutics in Sydney, Moore, at Moore College in Sydney, Australia. He's a globally respected theologian. And when it comes uh, to entering dialogue about the millennium, here's what he has to say. <clears throat> he says, the millennium is not the central theme of revelation. Can I repeat that? The millennium is not the central theme of Revelation. The explicit references to Christ's reign of a thousand years are confined to one passage in the whole of the Bible, Revelation 20, 1 through 10. Now, if you, if you, if you didn't see the challenge there, let me highlight it for you. There's only one passage in the entire Bible that mentions the thousand years. Now, here's, here's what you need to know. <clears throat> they taught us this even when I was like a little kid in student ministry. You never build an entire doctrine off of one verse in the Bible. You never build an entire system of belief off of one section and all the scriptures, period. If you can help it, you don't want to do that. So what do you do? You have to look at the rest of the other scriptures that speak about what you believe about the millennium and hope that you can put those pieces together. Sometimes you can't. But if you have one passage saying this and another passage saying that and they seem to conflict, but then you have four passages saying this and one passage saying the opposite, you usually go with the four passages to interpret the one instead of the one to interpret the rest of them. Y'all follow me? So that, that's, that's part of the process here. Um, so uh, it, it's not to say that the millennium is unimportant. It is. It's just not the essence of revelation. In fact, uh, I just said Bruce is doing this sermon on Revelation 20. You'll never hear about the millennium again. You haven't heard about it yet. He'll do that message. You won't hear about it again for the rest because the Bible speaks nothing about it. Even in Revelation, it's just this passage. And yet this passage has been a conundrum for Christians for literally millennia. So let's look at the passage. If you have a Bible, you might want to look at this yourself, make your own notations, do whatever you want to do, <clears throat> write it in ink on your forearm, however you want it. Revelation 20, we'll look at the first three verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit, <clears throat> and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Now, here's what Alan Bandy, professor of New Testament, <clears throat> who's at Greek at the OBU. Any Oklahoma people out here? I know I got two of them. We got an elder out there. So uh, this guy's at Oklahoma Baptist. I think he gets to the heart of the debate when, he's, debate when he says this. The critical question is whether this age, what we're living in right now, will issue immediately into the final eternal state, that's called the golden age, or whether a further intermediary stage of the eschatological kingdom, a silver age, lies between. And you're like, Yancey, I have no idea what that guy just said there. <clears throat> Let me explain it to you. When you talk about the millennium, you got to figure out what it is. And for some people, the millennium uh, doesn't, when they see the Bible, they see Jesus coming. And when he comes, he brings us into the golden age of the kingdom. The kingdom is consummated. It's already here, but not yet in its fullest. And yet some people believe, and <clears throat> many of them, uh, I should say, believe that when Jesus comes back, the kingdom doesn't come in his fullness. It comes in, in somewhat a partial kingdom at least a partial kingdom compared to the new heavens and the new earth. And it's known as the silver age for some. It's, it's an intermediary age. And they don't call it that, but that's what it is. And so you're like, what does this have to do with anything? I'm going to show you later on what that means when it comes to the millennium. So there's like four big factors that you have to work through, or three I should say, that determine how you view the millennium. How you interpret Revelation 20. By the way, when Bruce preaches it, that's how you interpret Revelation 20. No pressure. No pressure. <clears throat> 
How do you view the relationship between Revelation 19 and 20? Is it recapitulating itself? Is 19 this, and does 20 recapitulate it from a heavenly perspective? A lot of people believe that. Some people believe no, 19's this, and then 20 comes right after that. They're sequential. Well, that'll affect how you read Revelation 20. Finally, how do you understand the relationship between Israel and the church? There are people that believe, uh, and I'm not saying right or wrong, just hear me. <clears throat> there are people that believe that Israel and the church are completely separate. God's got two different plans. Uh, Israel's plan A, the church's plan B. And there are other people out there, Christians that believe, no, that's not. God's only had one plan. He started with Israel and he's moved now into the church, the true Israel. Okay, well, how you understand that determines how you're gonna interpret the millennium. And so there's four major views, just to give you guys a heads up. So if you are taking notes, here's, there are four major views that we have of the millennium today. We have premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. So I'm gonna break these things down and We'll, I, I've worked on this on my little keynote presentation for this to kind of unroll as we go through like almost like a, a, a timeline. So if it messes up, it's all on me. I didn't have to anyone else do this. So this is just, you know, I'm a teaching pastor, not a tech guy, but here's what we're going to do. So let's look at premillennialism. <clears throat> here's what premillennialism believes. And you might also say this is called historic premillennialism. So the idea is this. We're in the church age. Jesus comes, he dies. He rises from the dead, he ascends, and that begins the church age. After the church age, you have the tribulation. Okay, so you have this period of time. Uh, uh, Premillennialists, some of them believe it's just seven years. Some of them believe it's an indeterminate amount of time. Uh, but they all believe that there is, a, there is a, 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 a tribulation that's not associated with the church age. It's separate from that, but the church is still in it. So notice, I, I'm trying to give you kind of the... <clears throat> the, the points of each one of these views so you'll know in your head what this is all about. So the church actually endures the tribulation. And then, after the tribulation, Jesus returns. Now, I want you to notice something here. Um, when they use the term, when a premillennialist uses the term rapture, what they're saying is they're being caught up with Jesus. I think this will work. There we go. Now, if you're watching this on live stream or on video, you're not seeing anything I'm doing. You just paid the price for not being there. All right, so... On the screen that I'm pointing to with my laser pointer, you would see it right here. But right there, y'all, that is what's known as the rapture for a lot of people. So what they believe is the rapture, how premillennialists would understand it is this. We get caught up with Jesus right here. We don't go anywhere north. We come right back to the earth. And then we keep, we, that's when Jesus starts his millennial kingdom. The millennium, <clears throat> a thousand year reign. Most premillennialists that I know take that as a literal thousand years, uh, although some might argue it could be an indeterminate period of time. Nevertheless, this is a time where Jesus is on the earth reigning with his church over people that are um, believers and unbelievers, by the way, happen to be here at the time. Uh, there's, a little, there's a little tension here, so let's work through this. In the tribulation, you have the resurrection of believers when they come, when Jesus comes back and Satan is bound for that thousand years. And he's completely bound, like he's not even there. <clears throat> and then he doesn't show up until the end. Here's what happens. Now, notice I have the church here on each one of these phases up here on the big screen. The church is present, obviously in the church age. It's present in the millennium, and it's present, excuse me, it's present in the tribulation and the millennium. That's what a premillennialist believes. By the way, premillennial means they believe Jesus is coming, what, uh, before the millennium. Pre, before millennium. That's what that simply means. So, let me give me some else. At the end of the millennium, Satan is released. 
Armageddon happens. And then you have the general resurrection of the unbelievers. So what you have going on here, actually, not only unbelievers, you'd also have the general resurrection of believers because believers can die here unless you have a glorified body. And I know that seems complicated. Just hold on. If you're a premillennialist, you believe you've been resurrected and you have a glorified body and you're living with Jesus on the earth for a thousand years. The problem, not the problem, a tension is at the end of this, there's gonna be a war. Now someone's gonna go, well, <clears throat> we're all the, I thought there are only Christians here. Well, depends on who you ask, but at the end of the tribulation, there's supposed to be Jesus coming in a great war, right? Um, uh, and this war in Revelation 19, it says that Jesus extinguishes all the evil. He kills all the unbelievers in judgment. And they'll be like, well, then who's here? What they'll say is, People that became Christians during the tribulation and that are still alive, so they don't have regenerated bodies. They don't, they're not glorified. I know this is complicated, just follow me. So they, they're still alive going into the millennium. What if you died, you're resurrected, and you have a glorified body? So what they have in the tribulation, excuse me, in the millennium, is you have glorified Christians and you have non-glorified Christians living together. The non-glorified Christians can have kids, glorified Christians can't. So they have children, they have children, they go for a thousand years, and those children somehow become unbelievers, and they wage a war against God at the end. That's where Armageddon comes from. Now, when I describe these things, I'm not saying you have to believe this or not. I'm trying to be fair to describe these different positions. Y'all follow me? Okay, so after judgment, <clears throat> they have the new heavens and the new earth. This goes into the, you know, the world without end. Revelation 21, by the way, so that's what we're talking about. Uh, and then if, if not, it's eternal judgment, hell, right? the lake of fire, the beast, the dragon and his followers are thrown in there. So that's premillennialism. All right, test is in five minutes. Get your notebooks out. So what you need to understand uh, is this is, a, again, we have uh, glorified believers and unbelievers in the millennium, uh, along with also people that have become Christians. Uh, th this, this view uh, is very historic. It's why it's called historic premillennialism. It's been around from the first couple of centuries. I think it was popularized in the second century AD. It's got a lot of legs to it. It's been around a long time. Um, I'm not going to critique it. I'm just going to explain it. <clears throat> That's premillennialism. The next one I want to talk about is dispensational premillennialism. Now, someone just went, what are you talking about, dispensational premillennialism? So is that different than premillennialism? It is, and I'll tell you why. Dispensationalism shorthand, if I can do this as briefly as possible, is at least a view that says that the church and Israel are completely separate. Now, people will argue because dispensationalism is is broad. There's old dispensationalists, there's progressive dispensationalists, there's I don't know what a dispensationalist is group, there's all kinds of dispensationalists, right? But what they, what they believe in general is that God has two different plans. And if God made plans to Israel, he needs to fulfill those plans with Israel, not with the church. They're two separate. And this is, you're going to see where they depart from regular premillennialism. I would argue this is the main view of Christians today in North America, not globally, though. This is the main view of Christians in North America if you're an evangelical. Um, I think 65% of evangelicals say that they are dispensationalists. You may go, I never even heard the term, but I would dare say that how I describe this may be how you understand the end times. So let me go with it. It also has a church age, right? <clears throat> now, here's what's different. Because God has a different plan for Israel and the church, he's got to get the church off the planet. Y'all starting to know where I'm going with this one? There's this kind of return of Jesus. 
What I mean by kind of is that this is what we, they call up here on the screen, y'all. This is, this is the rapture part. Now, when they say rapture, a dispensationalist says rapture, this is God took you from your, you know, your clothes are gone, the car crashes, this is the left behind stuff, Tim LaHaye, all those kind of guys. I'm not trying to say right or wrong, I'm telling you that's their position. The whole, this car will be unmanned, that's this view. So the idea is that Jesus returns, immediately there's judgment. Actually, they have about eight different judgments. Uh, they have a judgment at the cross. There's a judgment here because in order to be taken up to heaven, you have to have been judged. So they believe there's a judgment of believers here, but there's a resurrection of believers. You're resurrected, you're glorified, and then you get taken to heaven. So that's why the church is going up here. That's their view. Now, this is the Antichrist pops up then. Mm, it's a party. And all of a sudden, we've got tribulation. Now, the reason I had to make this a small T because they got a lot more moving parts than all these other views. So just... Go with me here. Uh, where where is, the, is the church on earth during the tribulation in this view? Doesn't look like it. Now, it just depends on which uh, dispensationalist you talk to. Some say, <laughs> uh, how can I do this? If you don't believe that you're going through the tribulation, you're called a pre-tribulationist. Huh? Makes sense. If you, go, if you think you're going to go three and a half years, you're called a what? Some of you are mids. You just got to you know, say I'm a mid-tribulationist. So they're called mid-tribulationists. If you go through the whole thing, what do you call that person? A Christian. So let's move on. No, I'm, <clears throat> I'm joking. I'm joking. It was too easy to give that one up. <clears throat> they're called post-trib. So you have pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. And they all lovingly, maybe not so lovingly, fight about that, <clears throat> depending on how they interpret tribulation. But here's their big deal, um, and you'll hear uh, dispensationalist preachers say this all the time, church, don't worry about the tribulation, you'll never be there. You'll never be there. This is not for you. You'll never be there. It's, everything's literal, and everything's linear. So this is literally seven years right on the dot. And what happens is this. You have the return of Jesus. This is where it gets a little different. You have the return of Jesus. At the return of Jesus, there's another judgment. Another judgment. I believe they take that from... Revelation 19, uh, this judgment uh, happens, uh, again, uh, all unbelievers are destroyed, except those who hide in the hills, they would say that, no, literally, that you know, Jesus doesn't see them or something, and they, can, they get away. Um, I'm not trying to be facetious, I'm trying to tell you how they, they would explain it. Satan's bound here, much like that we see in historic premillennialism, and here's the difference. In the millennium, and I'm, I'm going to show you something here. What's the millennium like? It's a thousand-year reign of Jesus, but it's an explicitly Jewish kingdom. Why? Where's the church? Church is in heaven. So here's what I've tried to share with you guys as we see where the church is. The church is on earth during the church age. Jesus raptures secretly, and that's why this is outlined where it's kind of like you can't really, it's a secret rapture. No one knows it's coming. No one sees anything. This is, got, you know, it's just a mystery. Everyone's gone. Um, these guys zip up here. Sorry, that seems, I'm not trying to be trite about it. They go to heaven. Uh, they're up there with Jesus. Uh, there is some debate about how much amongst dispensationalists, how much is the church involved in the millennium? I think you have guys like John Walvoord, some of the old school dispensationalists, they're like, listen, uh, the church is for heaven and Israel's for the earth. That's what they would say. The kingdom of God for the church is only up here in heaven, and the kingdom of the earth is only for Israel here. Um, but there are other guys in that same group that said no, uh, because the Bible says that we will, <clears throat> the church will judge Israel. 
or something to that effect. So they'll say during the millennium, the church kind of is there. Uh, one guy, I don't know if it's Charles Ryer, I don't know who the guy is, one of the guys, one of the major writers says, actually, maybe it's Dwight Pentecost, the, the church will actually hover above the earth in the heavenly city of Jerusalem. Like you'll see it in the sky, but they won't come down, they'll only come down to judge. Because what you have to understand, for dispensationalism, they don't want to mix the church and they don't want to mix Israel. And so what, if I'm being fair, and I think I am, what they would say is this is explicitly Jewish because God, whatever promise God made in the Old Testament to Israel, he, that those promises of which he's not filled yet, fulfilled yet, he fulfills them here to Israel. So they'll get their patch of land back. I mean, even more than what they have. Uh, many dispensationalists believe that they'll rebuild the temple. They'll reinstitute sacrifice. Uh, some believe that. More progressives don't believe that because you can see how problematic that would be if you reinstitute sacrifice. But they're like, no, this is, this is all about um, the Jewish millennial kingdom. And um, it, so I'll explain dispensationalism a little bit more. But so what you have to understand is like, you're really not a part of this, only if anything to judge, but it's really just for the Jews. Okay, where do we go from here? Well, this seems pretty similar to the other ones. At the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan is unloosed. Excuse me, he's loose, not unloosed, he's loosed. Um, and then you have Armageddon. You've got another resurrection here. So just imagine if you're an unbeliever, you're not resurrected here or here, you're resurrected a thousand years later. And then you have judgment. Then after that, this all looks the same. The dispensational premillennialists also have a new heavens and a new earth and the eternal judgment. Now the church comes back for sure here and it's, it's you know, Jew, uh, Christian, whether they be Jewish Christian or Gentile Christian, all one family in Christ, we inherit the new heavens and the new earth. That's not what happens here, though, okay? All right. <laughs> I can't wait to give you a test on this. Um, so again, any promise that was made in the Old Testament that was not yet fulfilled, at least how they define not being fulfilled, gets fulfilled here for Israel. So what you have to maybe understand for a dispensational perspective is, again, this is God's plan A, and we're plan B. Now, they may not like that language. That's language I heard from dispensationalists when I was taught under dispensational teaching. And so uh, they may not like that. That's, that's actually what I heard when I was kind of growing up in some of this stuff. So again, not right or wrong, just trying to explain to you how they view that. So uh, passages like Isaiah 65, Ezekiel 40 through 48, where it talks about the lion or the wolf lays down with the lamb, they say that that's all here. Um, so that being said, that's dispensational premillennialism. What you, we're going to come back to dispensationalism because, as you might see, they have a very unique view of the rapture that you're going to find out no other millennial view has. And yet it's the view that everyone believes. So I want to push back on you a little bit here. Watch this. Amillennialism. What's amillennialism? Amillennialism is, um, it's, it's rather popular denominations like Presbyterians or Anglicans and Eastern Orthodox and Lutherans. This is kind of, if you grew up in those traditions, I didn't. Uh, I had a little Anglicanism, but uh, for the most part, I didn't, I didn't know anything about this. If you come from those traditions, this is probably what you were taught. <clears throat> you believe this, or this is what an amillennialist believes. It's, it's really a bad term. What does ah mean if you're amoral? Yeah, you don't have any morals. You're kind of, you're, you're, they say amoral. Um, you're, you don't, you're not plus or minus. It's a bad term because it says that they, if you're an amillennialist, it, that means you don't believe in the millennium, but it actually means that you do believe in the millennium. It's just an inaugurated millennium. In other words, that it's, that's already going on. So what you see here, let me put these three things together. For amillennialists, here's the church age. Jesus dies, resurrected, now he reigns, and he reigns. 
And millennium is not a literal thousand years. It's an epoch of time. Uh, you have 10, 10 is, is, is the number of completion as well. 10, three times, you trinity it. It's this, it's this time that God has where he wants to do whatever he wants to do. It doesn't have a, an ending that we know about, only he does. And so for them, millennium's uh, uh, symbolic about Christ's current reign in the heavens. I'm just telling you what all millennials believe. They also believe that we're always in the tribulation. We've always been in the tribulation. Uh, they also believe that at the end, I know you can't see it. Ah, yeah, you can't see it on the, on the big screen in here. And notice how it starts off light here and dark here. They believe that that tribulation gets worse, that the, the further you go to the closer to Jesus' return, the more intense tribulation becomes where it becomes the great tribulation. Y'all follow? So um, amillennialists interpret the millennium as describing really the present reign of deceased souls in heaven. They, they live with Jesus, reigning with him. That's how they interpret that. Now, what happens here? Here's what's, what you're going to like about amillennialism is everything happens one time. <laughs> it's, it all happens one time. Jesus returns. Saints released. The Antichrist is there. And Armageddon. And general resurrection. And judgment. And then you go to the new heavens and new earth. That's it. That's what amillennialists believe. They like to do their test as quick as possible, turn it in, and they're done. <laughs> it's a very simplified way of understanding it. But, but to be fair, and I want to just, you know, I want to represent these guys uh, well, um, with this going on, they see all of it concurrent. This is all, it's not too different. It's not the church in Israel. It's all the people of God. Jesus returns. Everything happens. This, this, the, the very end here, Satan's release, Antichrist, Armageddon, all that happens. Jesus comes and judges and then ushers us in to the new heavens and new earth. Now, notice, no, no silver age. There's no, there's no intermediate step. It's, it goes right into the golden age as opposed to other ones. Just trying to tell you a little difference here. So um, another important part of amillennialism is they believe in the already not yet. Now, you know, we teach that here. We teach that a lot already not yet. In other words, that the kingdom's already here, but not yet in the fullness of itself, not yet fully consummated, only because we believe Jesus teaches that. He says the kingdom is here with you. I've brought the kingdom, but obviously not in its fullness until he returns. Uh, anything else I need to mention there? Uh, apparently, everyone's in really good shape both in heaven and hell, so I don't know what to tell you. I don't, it's all I had. It's all I had. Um, I'll say this. All the Old Testament prophecies about Israel are fulfilled in Jesus in this view. And Jesus fulfills that. It's not a literal land that God's trying to put people back on. Uh, Jesus is the land. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the priest. Uh, they, they would argue that all the promises in Jesus are yes. That's how they would defend that. And so everything is in Jesus. This also is, well, we'll get into how historical it is. This is also super historical. Actually, all of them are but one. Um, and I'll show you that. All right, that's all millennialism. That's, that's the easier one to figure it out. Postmillennialism. I don't know how to talk about postmillennialism. Uh, so <clears throat> what's post mean? After. So here's what they believe. Don't just reserve your, your, your feelings about this. So... Jesus comes, and he dies, and he rises from the dead, and he inaugurates the church age. They all believe the church age starts at the same time, all views. And they believe that the tribulation, also like all millennialists, starts at the same time, but they believe at some point it starts to die down. There's a great tribulation, we think, with, with post-millennialists, but at some point, the church becomes so successful in her mission, so wonderful in her mission, that, it's, um, that they enter into a millennial time. Now, millennium for the post-millennialist is also figurative. It's not literal. Um, and they believe that, that Satan is bound during this time. 
bound in the sense that uh, he is unable to deceive the nations from believing the gospel. By the way, all millennialists believe that too. Satan's bound during, the, uh, uh, during this whole time. Um, in that, he can't deceive the nations from becoming followers of Jesus. That's why world missions works. They really believe world missions works, this view, because they believe that the, the church is, I, this is, the, well, I'm, I gotta stop, because I'm gonna tell you the view I wanna believe, but I would really like this view, because this view says the church is so successful, so successful, that it basically has a, a period of peace and joy and beauty because the whole world has been moved by the mission of Jesus. And because of that, Jesus returns. The king, the palace, if you will, has been prepared for the king and he returns. And so it's almost like the golden age, they move into it by the power of the church through the work of the spirit. Christ returns, there's judgment, but the church is always there. Now this is very similar to amillennialism, but the big difference is this. Amillennialists will be like, well, it's kind of good and kind of bad. Postmillennialists are like, nope, it's kind of bad, but it starts off to get better and better and better and better. Now, um, Postmillennialists kind of get uh, hit up uh, because we've had, you know, this was really popular before World War I, not so popular after. Really popular before World War II, not so popular after World War II. Um, right now, postmillennialism is having a resurgence in uh, Christianity, uh, especially among evangelicals. I hope that doesn't mean World War III. Let's just hope that's not the case. Um, not trying to put anything on you. I'm not a prophet, so just go, it's all right. Uh, but this has a resurgence right now. Um, and it's, and it, it, it trusts like the work of the two witnesses we saw in Revelation, that they've been given authority to share the gospel until the last person gets to be shared with. And so they just have confidence in that. And they have other passages. I don't want to go through the whole thing. Um, but again, the, the, what you need to know about post-millennialism is that Jesus arrives post, after the millennium. And the millennium's a really, really good thing. Now, man, I can't believe I've gone through all this stuff because I didn't know how long this would take. This didn't really take me that long. So we're done. Let's pray. Uh, no. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> what are we gonna do with this? So here's what I want to ask, uh, you guys may wanna ask us. What position does Clear Creek hold on the millennium? Well, here's the drum roll, here's what we got. Here's what we believe, we are pan-millennial. However it pans out, that's what we believe. <laughs> I'm just telling you, listen. However it pans out, that's what we believe. You can clap for that, because that's what we believe. Uh, listen, I'm... I have my doubts about the way people define rapture, but if all of a sudden I'm in my underwear up in heaven, I'm like, Jesus, what happened? He's like, you should have believed the rapture I taught you, son. I'm like, well, I should have trusted my dad, but I didn't. I'm not really going to argue. I mean, if I knew that there was one specific one that was the right one, I would wear that shirt. So uh, we just we joke that we're pan-millennial. However it pans out, it's what we believe. Here's what we really say. We don't have an official millennial position. We don't have one. Now, do we lean certain ways as a teaching team? You better believe it. And if you've kind of read, read, read between the lines in our Revelation series, you kind of know where we hold, where we stand, of how we interpreted it. Been a good series, hasn't it? I mean, listen, I mean, we're telling you straight up. Well, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Please clap more. Um, I didn't mean it like that. Um, here's why we don't have an official position, though. Let's just say that Bruce and Yancey and Greg and Chris and Carl and Lance and Aaron and Ryan, I think I got them all. Um, <clears throat> let's say we all believed one view, and we very well might. We still wouldn't make that the official position at Clear Creek Community Church. And here's why, here's why, here's why. Um, there have been way too many different views throughout the last 2,000 years for us to say this has got to be the one. 
when it's based on a book full of symbols and signs and images that the church has struggled to understand for so many years. It just seems unwise for us to say, here's our official position. Now, you might think, well, yeah, that's what most churches do. Nope. There are churches out there at many denominations that make one view the official position, and they make it almost an essential belief. That's, uh, the pastor means like, that's wrong. You don't want to do that. Because you might find yourself 10 years from now not believing the view that you used to hold, like me. Uh, I've, I've shared with you two views on here that I used to hold. I don't hold them anymore. But you might. And heck, I, I might 10 years from now re-hold them again. But the reason that we don't hold this as an official position is because we feel like in good standing with the church historic, there's just been too many good Christians with too many good arguments for all these different sides. So if you, that bums you out, like, ah, Auntie, I was hoping for post. Um, I was too. But um, I can't pull that one yet. Um, here, here's what, let me, let me give you Justin Martyr, uh, one of the first early church fathers. I mean, the guy lived around 100 AD. This guy knew people that knew people who knew Jesus. Here's what he says. I admitted to you formally that I and many of others of this opinion, excuse me, that I and many others are of this opinion. He's a premillennialist, right? So he's like, I hold this view. And I believe that such will take place. So I want you to know, guys, you know what view I hold is what Martyr's saying. <clears throat> and you, you know I think that's how it's going to take place in history, as you assuredly are aware of. Like, I've talked to you about this. But, on the other hand, I signified to you that many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think what? Otherwise. Postmillennialists and amillennialists and maybe even some dispensationalists in there as well. That there are different people this is the first, actually, second century early church father who said, here's the view I hold, but I can't be dogmatic about this view as a creedal position. By the way, do you know that uh, none of these views ever made the creeds? None of them got creedal position. You know why? Because you couldn't be that dogmatic about it. Now, you can hold your view and do it with clenched fist. I'm just telling you, in the early church, these old boys and gals, they're like, listen, man, I, I hold on to what I believe tightly, but not so tightly that I can't dialogue with you and recognize that you're a follower of Jesus, and you might be a postmillennialist or an amillennialist or a dispensational premillennialist or some other thing I don't even know about. That's how they viewed that, and that's how we view that as well. So, <clears throat> so we're not going to, if the early church didn't find consensus on this, and it never made a church creed, it cleared creek, we're just going to see how it all pans out and go with what we know. And we have convictions about where, where we think this is, but if you're gonna ask us like, no, 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 no. What does Clear Creek believe on paper? Here's what we believe. We believe that Jesus' return will be visible, corporal, glorious, and imminent. That's what we believe. That's what we believe. Well, I mean, that's what we believe. So, by the way, you can take any one of those other views and say the same thing. Jesus, so you need to hear this from me. Jesus is coming and we will see him coming. It will be a bodily coming. It will be an amazingly glorious coming. And it's coming. It's imminent. It can come anytime. That's what we believe at Clear Creek Community Church. And so with that being said, I'm done forever talking about the millennium. No, I'm not. I'm not. So um, those are the views of the millennium. And we're going to get to some Q&A, but I want to tell you that if you have a view of a millennium, that means you have a view of, of this next thing. You have a view of the rapture. You have a view of the rapture. Now, let me tell you this, boys and girls. What most North American evangelicals believe is incredibly uniform. And what I want to show you um, is not an attempt to convince you to believe something differently. I want to just tell you where your beliefs come from. Because you might be surprised about where your beliefs come from. <clears throat> and um, uh, for those who believe the rapture is the moment when Jesus you know, secretly 
snatches you away, which is the predominant view. Uh, the secret rapture theory is what it's called. Um, and I, if you believe that, God bless you. So I want you to hear that. Uh, you know, I, again, I, I just, no one ever teaches this stuff. This is what drives me nuts. And I wanted to use this forum to finally tell you guys where this stuff comes from. And you can still hold to whatever you want to hold. But let me give you a little history lesson here. All right. It all starts back, I feel like I'm an old time grandpa. It all starts back in the 19th century <laughs> with a man named John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby was a Plymouth Brethren, got kicked out of his church because he had some really different views. By different, I mean weird views about the church. He got kind of booted out. And there's a rumor that a woman or a young girl told him that she had this vision about how history was broken up into these different periods that he and she called dispensations, they called dispensations. And Darby's known as the father of dispensationalism. It's a hermeneutical system. Wow, that's a big fancy word. It's a, it's a way people interpret the Bible that sought to divide biblical history into different eras or dispensations. That's not new, by the way. That, he wasn't the first guy to do that. Uh, people have divided the Bible into different eras, different dispensations, all throughout, really, the church age. Uh, the early church fathers do it. We do it when we talk about Old Covenant and New Covenant. That's it. We've talked about two eras or dispensations. But here's the difference with Darby. Darby believed that Israel had a different plan, and I told you this earlier, than the church did. And there was a strong difference between Israel and the church. And so what he promoted was this idea that Israel and the church had a, a, a parallel uh, but separate roles. So they had two different tracks. Once Jesus came, uh, Jesus comes to a dispensationalist, Darby would teach, uh, that Jesus came to the Jews. They rejected him and said, like, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to go to these guys, the Goyim, the Gentiles, and we're doing a different plan. And so like, why I mean different is there are separate plans. So for example, um, a dispensationalist would read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. When you pray, do this. When you don't, they would say that's not for Christians. That's for Jews under the Old Testament law. In fact, all of the New Testament, for the most part, is not for Christians, by the mean, I mean the Gospels, I should say, until Jesus dies. And from Acts on, that's pretty much for the Gentiles. Now you're like, I've, I've never heard that. I, I know you've probably, maybe you have heard that. By the way, if you have a Ryrie study Bible, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, or a Schofield study Bible, that's what it says. Uh, you, you shouldn't, the, the Lord's Prayer doesn't apply. That's only for Jews. So I'm telling you, there's a, there's a big distinction between the church and Israel. And Darby also popularized the idea that because of that, the church would be raptured or snatched away just prior to what they call, well, it's not they, it's the Bible says, it's the 70th week of Daniel. That's their big deal. 70th week of Daniel. And the 70th week of Daniel, that's inaugurated when Jesus raptures the church, and this would be a secret coming. No one's going to hear about it. You're not going to see it. And this is the stuff that got popularized. But I want to tell you how it got popularized, because this guy, uh, as you can tell, 1882, 1800, we're talking 100 and, I don't know, 190 years, essentially, from what he started to write. So let me kind of give you a timeline on dispensational influence in the American church. It's uniquely American. It's uniquely American. Uh, John Nelson Darby influenced a guy named C.I. Schofield. Anyone ever heard of a Schofield reference Bible? It's okay. I've got one. I mean, it's one of the Bibles I have. Uh, I, use it for, I used to use it for study when I was younger, right? Uh, it was, he wrote the Sco, C.I. Schofield. I got married in Schofield's church in Dallas, Schofield Memorial Church. So, I mean, I, I got roots. I understand some of this stuff. 
uh, Schofield wrote the Schofield uh, Reference Bible, and it was super popular. And it was super popular in America. Like, remember the NIV came out in the 1970s, and it was like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever? That's akin to what Schofield did back in the 1800s. And so uh, he uh, was influenced highly by the dispensational teaching of Darby, and so he wrote the Schofield Bible, and that's what it looks like, just like that. If, if it's not like this kind of color, you don't have a real one. I'm joking. Uh, that's what the Schofield reference is. So he wrote a Schofield reference Bible, and everyone loved it, uh, and it had a lot of notes in it. But one of the notes that he had in there was like, for example, Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to you. Lord's Supper, I mean, the, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer doesn't, because this is for Israel. So he, he was teaching dispensationalism in it, right? Because he believed it. That's fair. That's what he wanted to do. But what happened is that Schofield reference Bible, Schofield influenced two other guys. They became somewhat, not his disciples, but kind of his fanboys, if you will. A guy named Dwight L. Moody. Anyone remember Dwight Moody? Dwight Moody was a famous evangelist. Um, and then another guy named Louis Sperry Schaefer. These guys loved the Schofield Reference Bible, were influenced highly by Schofield, and so they went on to, find, uh, to found two uh, prestigious learning institutions back in the day. Uh, D.L. Moody founded the Moody Bible Institute, figures, it's because it's his name, Moody Bible, good place. I have friends that went there, we have staff people that have been there, so we're not dogging Moody Bible, I just want you to understand. He founded that place, and it was a huge dispensational uh, kind of center point for a lot of people. And then uh, Lewis Berry Schaefer founded Dallas Theological Seminary. We got guys on our staff that are DTS guys. I'm, I'm great, DTS is a great school, but what you need to understand is they're highly dispensational. Now, why would that be important? Because I wanna show you the people they produced. They produced these people. Now I say these people, I don't mean these people, I just mean these people, okay? I need you to hear that. Yancey just, he called out Chuck Swindoll. No, I didn't. I just simply said Chuck Swindoll came out of this. He's the former president, chancellor, DTS. He's a DTS guy. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, John MacArthur, David Jeremiah, Charles Stanley. These guys, what they did initially is they were very popular on the radio. Anyone ever listen to them growing up? I did. I listened to those guys. I'm not dogging them. Dude, Chuck Swindoll can preach. John MacArthur can go verse by verse. Charles Stanley didn't listen to him that much. Um, so I'm just saying they were influential. In the 80s, they got generations of Christians to listen to them. Some of you are a part of the cassette ministries way back in the 80s. Come on now. Cassette ministry. Oh, my gosh. I probably listened to 1,000 cassettes of John MacArthur from Grace to You. Okay? So uh, here you have, uh, I would argue, primarily people that, that wrote books. Now, you have Billy Graham, of all people. He's kind of the rock star of them all. Charles Ryrie. The Ryrie Study Bible. I have a Ryrie Study Bible. Tim LaHaye. He wrote, uh, yeah, uh, Left Behind. Uh, Hal Lindsey. My dad loved Hal Lindsey. He read Late Great Planet Earth. He, I read a couple of those books because dad would feed to me like, this is the truth, son, you better read it. So I would read those books, right? And then on these last guys down here, you have Dave Brees and Jack Vanipee. These are the guys that are on like religious TV. You see them on TV. Well, you don't see, I think uh, Mr. Vanipee uh, died a few years ago. Uh, Dave Brees, I don't know if he's still alive, but these are the people that you'd see on TV. So notice you have radio, books, and television. They owned it. They owned it. In fact, they still, you see a lot of these guys on today. They owned multimedia back, they were, they were on to multimedia before the internet ever came around. And they influenced generations upon generations upon generations of people to believe dispensational theology. Now again, I'm not saying right or wrong, I'm just telling you, this is why 65% of evangelicals identify as dispensationalists. Because these men, primarily men, influenced a whole generation of American Christians. Now, what my, my, my only thing that I want to put before you is, 
If these people influenced you, you gotta understand they're all in the same camp. All of them are in the same camp. All of them are in the same camp. So let me give you a perspective historically what this looks like in the history of the church. Just to give you a little idea. Here's the history of the church from 100 to 2000. Let me show you how much amillennialism and premillennialism and postmillennialism has been around. It's been around the entire time. You know how long dispensationalism has been around? That long. I'm not saying right, I'm not saying wrong. I'm saying they're the new kids on the block because it started with Darby. They're only this old. They're not this old. Now, that may mean nothing to you, but I want you to understand, um, here, and I'll say this one more time, you can believe it Clear Creek, we're open-handed about this, any millennial view that you want, but the millennial view that you hold will determine what you believe about the rapture, okay? And if you believe in a secret coming, that's fine. You just need to know that's not even talked about for the major part of 2,000 years. For 1,800 years, no one knew anything about a secret rapture. No one knew anything of Jesus taking you up just in your skivvies and no, you've never coming back to earth. Do you know this? No other view holds that. And there's a reason for that. And I'll show you the reason. There's two primary passages that come to mind when we talk about the rapture. Here's the first one. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. For the Lord himself, the reason I want to talk about this, y'all, we're doing a study in Revelation, not 1 Thessalonians, but 1 Thessalonians talks about the rapture. Have you noticed we haven't talked about the rapture in Revelation? Because it's not in it. Wow. It's not in there. I mean, really, there's nothing that says, and the rapture will happen. By the way, it doesn't even say that in 1 Thessalonians, but nevertheless. All right, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. First, let's ask, when you read that passage, do you see anything secret about that? Let's see. A cry of command, voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. Does that sound secret? That's why, for the first 1,800 years of the church, no one believed in a secret rapture. I'm just telling you. No one knew anything of, this is gonna be a rapture, no one's gonna know what's coming, you're gonna zip out of your car and your airplane. Of course, they wouldn't know what that was 1,800 years ago, but anyhow. But when they read the text, the primary text on the rapture, by the way, rapture just means to be seized or to be taken. They didn't see any of that in there. Look at the second part of this passage either. Notice what it says here. It says, so we will always be what? So just imagine what happens here. This text means that however Jesus comes, from that point on, whatever that looks like, we're with Jesus forever. But that's not what dispensationalism teaches. It says you go to heaven, and then you come back to the earth. Some argue halfway through the, uh, through the millennium. Some say you're not at the millennium at all. Some say you're hovering over the millennium. I'm, I don't know. Um, obviously, I'm not a dispensationalist, at least anymore, so I don't know exactly how they would say that. But then that's not the end. In the dispensational teaching, after, and even premillennialists, after a thousand years, what else do you have to have after a thousand years? What's after a thousand years? If you're a Christian, where do you go? Yeah, that's right, the new heavens and the new earth. And so it seems like even the text itself that um, we're going to have what, whatever Jesus comes back at that moment, that's going to be the moment of eternity. We will forever be with him. Now, this obviously doesn't mean we're going to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord in the air. That's not what that means. That means when he, <laughs> sorry, I just thought that was weird. I just, when I read that, I was like, surely no one takes it that literally. Eh. 
you know? You know, you need your little legs dangling there. I was like, what's that guy doing up there? I don't know. And you just walk into that celestial heavens. It's whatever. Okay, so. Um, it's at this point we're also glorified. Let me give you a cross-reference. You don't have to turn this. Uh, you don't have to look at this yourself. 1 Corinthians 15, which is another text about when Jesus returns. Uh, 51 through 53 says this. It says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we should all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Which trumpet? The last trumpet. At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. It's going to sound. Sounds like this. There's going to be a trumpet. Wait, there's, there's a trumpet here too. There's going to be a trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for the perishable. This is one of my favorite lines. We preach this thing at Easter. This dog will hunt. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mod, immortal body, this mortal body will put on immortality. Why? Now that tells you when Jesus returns, that that moment, that's the last trumpet. We see a trumpet here as well. At that moment, this looks like this is this talking about the same thing. We who are di- dead are, are raised with a new glorified body and changed in the twinkling of an eye, and that body is what? It's immortal and imperishable. Why? Because whatever eternity we're going into is, immor- is immortal and imperishable. What's the immortal and imperishable eternity? The new heavens and the new earth. I'm telling you, y'all, this is why dispensationalism is the new kid on the block because they didn't connect like we're not going to come back to earth. They all hold that view. Glorification now in this view doesn't seem to happen until the new heavens and the new earth. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, I don't want to get too complicated here. Let me just do this. Let me, let me take you to something else in Thessalonians, what it says here. It says here that we're, we're going to meet him. Y'all see that where I've highlighted that? We're going to meet him. The Greek word for meet him is apatan, excuse me, apontesis. My Greek's not that good. I can't pronounce that well. Apontesis. It's, it was a term used in the New Testament times to describe when a ruler would come back. So if a, if a ruler left the city walls and he went out to go conquer an enemy and he came back, the people would leave the city and they would go out to meet him outside of the city. They would meet him, celebrate him, and come back into the city with him. Now, that's not a weird image because we already see that with Jesus. When do we see that with Jesus? The tri- How many of you remember the triumphal entry? How many of you remember Palm Sunday? What do they see outside of the gates of Jerusalem? They see their king coming. And so they go outside and they meet their king before he comes back. It's the same word that we see here in this passage. So what looks like in the ancient context is what's happening here. Who's returning home? The king who has conquered. And we meet him in the air right, in the air, and then we return with him in that moment back to the earth where he reigns. Now, if you're a premillennialist, the thousand-year starts. If you're an amillennialist, nope, we've been in it. We're going in the new heavens and the earth. And if you're a postmillennialist, you're partying because it's still a party, right? <laughs> None of those views have a secret rapture. They have a cry, an archangel, and a trumpet, and everyone sees it. Just as the Lord left, so he comes back, and we all see him that way. And so because of that, this is why New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it this way. Paul's image of the people meeting the Lord in the air, quote unquote, should be read with the assumption that the people will immediately turn around and lead the Lord back to the newly remade world. You know why? Because that's how they did that in the ancient world. Paul's mixed metaphors of trumpets blowing, we've seen that, and living beings being snatched into heaven to meet the Lord are not to be understood as literal truth as the Left Behind series suggests, but as a vivid and biblically elusive description of the great transformation of the present world in which he speaks elsewhere. Now, obviously I've shown my hand, that's what I believe as well, 
But I want you to take a look at another important passage that correlates with this. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, or it says about this, immediately after the tribulation, Jesus says, <clears throat> immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. I don't know why I said it like that, but it sounded cool. <laughs> son of Man, I don't know. I was, I was getting my rock star on. It looked pretty awesome. Uh, the Son of Man. And then, uh, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man coming on the cloud. Have you all been following us today, by the way, in our Revelation series? That sounded a whole lot like the seventh bowl coming. Wrecking shop. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud, what is it? How many trumpets are we going to see? It's all the same trumpet. With a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, here's what I want you to see. Now, let me be fair, because I had to talk with a dispensationalist yesterday. Get my, I had to be correct on this. I, I, I had a call, made a call. I was like, listen, how, how do you guys interpret this? Because I've forgotten how I was taught. This is what I was raised in. And so what they say, this is actually, um, th this is just Jesus coming to start the millennial kingdom. This is only for Jews. <clears throat> and because um, the church, what they say is the church, uh, you know, I won't even call out who it was, a very famous writer, not on the list I gave you, said that this is just for, the church is nowhere in this passage. I beg to differ. Look what it says here. It says, the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Does that sound secret to y'all? With a loud trumpet call. It's not even, I mean, they just, they put the amps out and they just let this one rip. And they're gather his elect. Uh, now, what I've heard from dispensationalists is that the elect are the Jews, but that's not what that says. First Peter calls all of the Christians elect. Matter of fact, it says it all throughout the New Testament. Um, but notice what we see here. We see, just like we see in First Thessalonians, we see the descent of the Lord, we see a loud trumpet call, and we see the gathering of God's people. Sounds like First Thessalonians isn't talking about like um, going into the millennium, it just talks about Jesus coming back. And that's the point. I tell you all this to say, this is why the three other views have never held a secret rapture for 2,000 years, and secret rapture theory has been around for 180. You can believe whatever you want, but I'm tired of this going around and no one knows the history behind it. Hey, don't take what I said for it. Go look it up yourself. Go ask dispensationalists where it comes from, and they'll tell you where it comes from just like I've told you, except they'll really emphasize that it's the right way. And I'm telling you, you gotta pick, and I'm okay whatever what you pick with, but we're not gonna not tell the truth about what, how this happened. So that gets us to the biggest question is, what does Clear Creek believe about the rapture? I don't have a word for pan-rapture. I don't know what it, you know, I'd be lying. <clears throat> so here's what I'd say. Um, I don't know why there's a blank slide here, because that says, what is our official view? I guess we don't have one. Um, <laughs> Because we don't have one. That's what it is. We don't have one. So I want you to hear this. We have an open-handed policy. If you were open-handed, when I say open-handed, you don't understand. Uh, when I teach systematic theology, I talk about open-handed and close-handed doctrines. A close-handed doctrine is what we're going to fight you about. You know, we're not going to let it go. Right? The atonement. Jesus is the only way, right? Um, but open-handed issues, those are things that we may have convictions about, but we're not going to make it the law around here. And so the rapture is one of those things. So I'd be lying if I told you the teaching team doesn't have a certain view. You, you obviously hear in the way that I'm talking that I don't subscribe to the secret rapture view anymore. I don't. But if you do, I'm, I'm totally down. Here's what you need to understand. At Clear Creek, you can be, uh, I don't know how they put them all together. You can be a dispensational, mid-trib, post, 
I don't know, drugs, uh, whatever you, 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 you be whatever you want to be and we're going to love you. Uh, because in the end, I will tell you this, if Jesus snatches me secretly, I'm not going to argue about it. And I bet you wouldn't either. You just don't want to be left behind, right? That's the whole point. So, uh, I, but I wanted to do that. So here's what I got. I think I've done this for an hour. We have the millennium. We've covered the rapture. Let me give you some resources that I think can be helpful for you guys. Um, and we're going to take a break and, uh, we're going to have some time for Q and a. So just, just, there was a whole hour. It only took an hour. See how painful that was. It's like a PCR test. You don't just, just then you're done. So, <clears throat> so here are the resources. A Bible in the future. Anthony Hokema. I get asked all the time, Nancy, is there a book that I could read to help me understand all this stuff? There's no better book I've ever read than Anthony Hokema's The Bible in the Future. I led a class on this this past summer, and it filled up within an hour of Clear Creekers, and we just capped it at like 30-something, because that was way, 30 was too many people anyhow. And there's no better book I've ever read on it, because I think he does a great job. It changed my viewpoint, just so you know. And I was a dispensationalist going in. So I'm, I'll show you my cards. I'll be honest about it. But it's an incredibly magnificent book. It's quoted by guys that aren't even of his same tribe that still respect it. So I uh, got a uh, Calvin Theological Seminary. Uh, this book, Gospel and Revelation, you can't buy it unless you buy the trilogy, but it's like $9. By Graham's Goldsworthy. Uh, by the way, uh, this comes with the book, Gospel and Kingdom, Gospel and Wisdom, and Gospel and Revelation. Gospel and Kingdom is why I bought the book. One of the best books on how you know biblical theology all through the Bible. It's magnificent. And then they just threw in gospel and revelation for the heck of it. I read it and was blown away by it. It's, it's not very long, and it helps you understand revelation in a very simple way. Mm, there you go. That's free. Um, David Campbell's Mystery Explained. Like when we don't know how to teach something, we'll just open this up and copy it word for word and say that we made it up. No, I'm... Um, let, let me tell you how this works. So the best commentary that I know about Revelation is Revelation. This is the shorter commentary. It's only 1,000 pages long uh, by a guy named Greg K. Beal. So you guys need to understand, I searched, when I, whenever we study a certain book of the Bible, I do a search on like who are the top scholars in the world on said book. And then I, I did a deep dive on Revelation because I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do this for fun, for my own personal development. I'm going to study Revelation on my own. I don't really know it as well as I think I do. So I'm going to print out every page of Revelation and get a top scholar's commentary. Uh, Dr. Bill was number one across the board. Liberals said he was number one. Conservatives said he was number one. Pastors said he was number one. Scholars said he was number one. And so I was like, oh my gosh, let me just, let me, let me sit at the foot of this guy, at least by, by the book. The book I read was not much this is the shorter commentary. The longer one was like 1,400 pages. It was still long. But I was blessed immensely by it. And you're getting the fruit of that in our series. And I, even had, I got a chance to talk to him. I did a Zoom chat with him. I was like, man, this is awesome. I get to talk to the number one scholar in the world right now on Revelation. So if you want to do a deep, deep, deep dive on this, get this book. But if you don't want to go that deep, uh, there's a guy that he worked with in this one called uh, David Campbell who kind of wrote the, the study notes with it. He just kind of said, you know what? I'm going to put all those study notes and put them right here in a book that's about this big. <laughs> and that's David Campbell's Mystery Explained. It's the cliff note version for people that want to do the cliff notes. And it's fantastic. I think he's uh, plagiarizing most of this, but he probably got permission. So uh, with that being said, here's what I want to do. That feels like, I know what it feels like. It feels like I just got a, a, fire, you know, a fire hose and sprayed you all down with all this information. Um, but I want to just make you aware of this. Uh, the church is broad. There's a kaleidoscope of beliefs, all within orthodoxy, and includes all four of these views. Dispensational premillennialism is a legitimate view. I want you to hear that out of my mouth. 
It's a legitimate view, and so is postmillennialism, and so is premillennialism, and so which one? Amillennialism, right? They're all legitimate, right? But they all influence how you understand the Bible, how do you understand church in Israel, and how do you understand the rapture? By the way, they're all they all have a rapture in it. One just they're all immediate except for dispensationalism, which is bifurcated to heaven. That's the difference. Uh, so with that being said, here's what I want us to do. As a sign of our solidarity and the fact that you get to go a little early to get your coffee and dessert, I'd love for us to stand and read this together because this is the end of Revelation. Not for our series, but for this, so we can affirm this. What I was going to do is divvy you all up, say I want the Amelianus here, the priest here, and I was going to give you some swords and we're going to fight it out. And I was just going to sit up here and record it all because I thought that'd be a YouTube hit. So uh, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say that in white. You just simply say that in gold, and we can be this. Uh, uh, Ryan, do you want to come back up after this, Ryan? Are you saying yes? I can't see. It's dark. I don't have the light of Jesus shining. Okay, here we go. <laughs> come on up here, by the way. I want you to just come on up here. Ready? He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Say it with me, y'all. Amen. Ryan's got something to tell us before we leave. All right. Hey, let's thank Yancey real quick. Really appreciate your work on all that. We appreciate your work. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to watch it or share it with a friend, make sure you go to clearcreateresources.org where you can also find articles and a whole bunch of other content. Again, my name is Ryan. Thanks for listening.